Hi, I'm Brent Stafford, and this is RegWatch by RegulatorWatch.com. During our coverage over the past several years, we've drawn your attention to what we call the Tobacco Control Industrial Complex, which is a loose coalition of federal and state public health agencies, research institutions, nonprofit advocacy groups, and large charitable foundations. These groups have deployed hundreds of millions of dollars in public and private funding into educational campaigns designed to diminish the growth of nicotine vaping or just ban it outright. Joining us today to discuss the impact of private money in the war on vaping is veteran reporter Mark Gunther. Gunther has written about politics, government, media, and business for nearly 50 years. He was an editor-at-large at The Guardian newspaper and a senior writer at Fortune magazine. In 2015, he turned to write for the Chronicle of Philanthropy, and you can find his current work on his Medium channel, The Great Vape Debate. Mark, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Brent. So first off, your work over the past couple of years linking philanthropy and the battle against vaping has been extraordinary. Top line for us, what is philanthropy and why did you first turn to covering the topic? Philanthropy is many things. Philanthropy is anyone sending a donation to a nonprofit organization, and that's usually fairly benign. But what I chose to focus on since 2015 was big scale philanthropy, large foundations with billions of dollars of assets and individual donors, also in many cases with billions of dollars of uh, money to spread around. And my thinking was to treat philanthropy as an exercise of power. I thought it was an exercise of giving. Well, that's traditionally the way much of it has been treated. uh, People have responded to philanthropy with a sense of gratitude. Uh, You know, someone donates a wing to a hospital, uh, a new building at a college, um, medical research. And again, typically the response is thank you very much. I do think though, Large-scale philanthropy is an exercise of power, and it deserves not so much gratitude, but scrutiny. What's going on here? Is this effective use of the money? What might the unintended consequences of this large-scale donation be? I think that it may be a surprise to some people to learn that these big foundations like the Ford Foundation and so forth were originally established to basically allow uh, money to be, I guess, hidden, is that the right term, or, or control of money to be passed down to the family? So hidden isn't quite the right term because formally uh, private foundations are subject to IRS rules, their tax returns are public. So eventually, if not quickly, we do get some insight into what they're doing. Other large-scale donors give through what's called donor advised funds. Those are private charitable accounts. And in those cases, yes, uh, their entire operations are hidden. They have no disclosure requirements. And so it sort of depends on which philanthropic vehicle you're talking about. But I think the main purpose initially was take large amounts of money, put it into tax sheltered institutions, allow it to grow over time, and then either the donor or the donor's heirs or eventually you know a board of just people who have taken over in a sense get to decide what happens with that money that's certainly the case at ford foundation no more ford family members are on the board i don't believe but others like the gates foundation uh, bloomberg philanthropies that we're going to talk about 
they do have a living donor and presumably those living donors exercise tremendous influence over how the foundation money is spent. So is it fair to um, call it uh, political agitation? I've heard it described that way. I think it depends on what the foundation is doing. I do think there are many efforts, both from the left and the right, to use foundation money to influence the political process. You see it on the left around issues like climate change. You see it from more conservative foundations around issues like charter school. Um, Foundations also get involved in debates over things like abortion and gay rights. And yes, that's political agitation. When the Gates Foundation sends money to Africa to provide bed nets for children to protect them from malaria, there's some politics in that decision, how you do it, who you give it to, where. But I I view those as more public service or or efforts to, you know, promote global health that, you know, as a rule are both well-intentioned and not especially controversial. You mentioned that it's power, uh, seeking of power, and obviously there's an exercisation of power too as well. Describe how that manifests itself. It manifests itself by supporting foundations, support nonprofit organizations with whose politics they're aligned. So there are a lot, particularly on the left, a lot of extremely liberal nonprofits out there that push for things like higher minimum wages, you know, Um, labor rights, protection for restaurant workers or home care workers. And those foundations, Ford in particular, is very active in those sectors, are in a sense saying, you know, give these folks more political power. Um, On the other hand, you know, this is it's both sides of the aisle. There are conservative foundations that essentially give to think tanks that are here in Washington, where I live pushing for lower taxes and less regulation, and those two are political issues. So the administrative state has made itself, availed itself to lobby, being lobbied. So I guess that's probably, in the end, the reason why this exists. Yes. um, Technically speaking, foundations aren't supposed to directly lobby, but I think that law is more... Uh, honored in the breach than in the observance. Um, You know, all these nonprofits provide what they call educational information to Congress and to the agencies, and they clearly have an intent to influence legislation and do so. Mark, your coverage, the things that you've been writing over the last couple of years on the vaping topic is extraordinary. Um, I remember when your first piece came out that, that I know of, which was the Chronicle, in the Chronicle of Philanthropy, and it was uh, Bloomberg's Millions. Tell us about that. Uh, so that piece took about four months of almost full-time reporting to do because I came to the issue of vaping as a complete outsider. I've never smoked. I've never vaped. Never have written about tobacco control issues. What essentially happened was uh, that Ethan Nadelman, who used to run the Drug Policy Alliance, and I were talking about another story And he said to me, have you ever taken a look at the debate about vaping? And I plunged in and I was surprised to find fairly quickly that a lot of what Bloomberg Philanthropies was funding and saying was not, in my opinion, 
really backed up by the science around vaping. Um, I can get into more detail if you want, but I tried carefully to assess both sides of the debate. And although the Chronicle story is written in pretty much a straight down the middle way, um, my own personal belief was that the folks who want an approach that is often called harm reduction, which is to say, Vaping may not be ideal behavior for anyone, but it's a lot better than smoking, and we should permit people and even encourage them to move from cigarettes to e-cigarettes. The science was predominantly on their side. And the other side, the Bloomberg Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids, Truth Initiative, other large nonprofits um, who were taking what is fundamentally a prohibitionist stance, I didn't think had the science to persuade me that that in the long run was going to be good for public health. And it's not that you haven't been covering contentious issues um, in the past. I mean, you spent a bunch of time at The Guardian, which I believe is considered to be a little bit more on the left side. Yeah, I wasn't super comfortable at The Guardian, to be honest, but yes. And certainly I've written about a lot of contentious issues in the past, a lot about climate change and politics and how the media conducts itself. And at the Chronicle did some investigative reporting that ended up costing the leaders of some big foundations and nonprofits their jobs. Um, and in this case, again, I came to it, I do think quite open-minded, but with some, I guess, libertarian instincts to be totally transparent. And I was just surprised at how dependent the prohibitionist side was on very sketchy science. And I was also really surprised and impressed to see that people with whom I might not agree on other issues, but people with lifelong commitments to tobacco control that is reducing the disease and death caused by smoking, um, were also committed to the idea that e-cigarettes could be a very valuable life-saving tool. So these are people whose credentials are impeccable. Um, you know, I don't want to start naming a lot of names, but people like Ken Warner, who's been with on the issue for decades, Steve Schroeder, the former president of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, and, and many, many others who were in the anti-smoking movement, in effect, are now in the protect vaping as an alternative to smoking. That's where they are to characterize their points of view. And of course, Bloomberg and tobacco-free kids um, are essentially anti-vaping. They'll tell you that their goal is to keep vaping out of the hands of children, but whenever presented with an opportunity to reduce adult access to e-cigarettes, they have seized it and supported it. Why is your Medium site titled The Great Vape Debate? I thought it was a clever title. And um, the debate about vaping is in some ways as you know, fascinating and divisive to me as the debate about other hot button issues where people tend to talk past one each other, talk past one another. So issues like abortion being the most prominent example. The difference is that I think the abortion debate is grounded in some pretty fundamental religious beliefs. 
on, on one side and beliefs in you know bodily autonomy for women on the other side. The vaping debate is one where both sides claim to be um, promoting public health, but again, I think there's a compelling argument that in the end, the efforts to restrict access to e-cigarettes are going to be detrimental to public health because they are going to, they already have discouraged lots of smokers from making what should be a free choice to move to a less harmful, less damaging way to obtain nicotine. Um, you know, one way to think about it is what started as an anti-smoking movement has explicitly become an anti-nicotine movement, even though there's very scant evidence that nicotine by itself is harmful to public health of adults. They say all of a sudden now that nicotine harms developing brains, but yet, you know, nobody from the 50s or the 60s or the 70s seemed to have brain damage. And, and they just trot it out as a full lie and everyone repeats it. Yeah, and there may be some evidence that nicotine does something to developing brains. I guess there are some mouse studies, but as you say, Brent, the logic would tell you, A, that there were, we don't know, there's no evidence of brain harm when you know a third of all Americans smoked back in the 50s and 60s and to, you know, of course, you learn things over time, but even today, um, the FDA has approved nicotine uh, therapy as an alternative to smoking. So you can go into a drugstore, I think, without a prescription, some cases with a prescription, and get nicotine gum, um, nicotine patches. Uh, in the UK, I believe even pregnant women are, are given nicotine if they want to help stop smoking. So the idea that nicotine is you know, harmful is highly dubious. And also the kind of anti-nicotine fundamentalism, I would call it, is extremely unfair to people who have found over time that nicotine helps them in some way. It may help reduce their anxiety. It may help them to focus. Many of today's Smokers and e-cigarette users are people who come from marginalized groups of one kind or another. Um, people with, you know, mental illnesses or emotional issues, LGBTQ people, uh, Native American smoking right, uh, rates are extremely high. And at least their revealed preference is that nicotine in the form of whatever is helping them in some ways. And I do think that's a preference that we should respect, barring evidence that they're doing terrible harm to themselves. And frankly, Brent, even in the face of that evidence, I think it's a preference that has to be taken seriously. Did the Chronicle, so the folks that you work with, uh, the, the Chronicle of Philanthropy, did they welcome uh, the, the strong look at Bloomberg Philanthropies? They did. Um, the editor there, whose name is Stacy Palmer, um, I think is a very gutsy person. And she also, I think, recognized that most of the coverage in the Chronicle is of the more straightforward, this grant went to this agency, than other analyses as well. But 
they don't tend to take on the big powerful foundations. And so, you know, I think she welcomes that in a way to kind of balance out the Chronicle and also because it was going to get a lot of attention. And I've worked with her for now seven years. And so we have a lot of trust in one another. I trust her editing and she trusts my reporting. Now, but the people who read that magazine, you know, the website and so forth, they're within the community of big philanthropy. Um, so was there pushback from readers? No pushback from readers that I'm aware of. There was pushback from Bloomberg and Truth Initiative and the cap, uh, campaign for tobacco-free kids. They wrote a longish letter to the editor, but it fundamentally didn't challenge any of the facts or arguments in the story. It really didn't engage. Your most recent piece, correct me if I'm wrong, from June 17th, 2022, is the unchecked power of philanthropy. You just keep pressing it. <laughs> yeah, I do. Actually, the most recent piece is a very long look at the truth initiative that ran in a publication called Filter under the headline, The Half-Truth Initiative. And it essentially just dissects a lot of claims that that organization has made over the years about the dangers of vaping and shows them not to be supported by science and also quotes uh, a number of former scientists who left Truth Initiative essentially saying that this nonprofit, which is the biggest anti-tobacco, anti-nicotine nonprofit in the U.S., um, has lost its way and seems to be doing more harm than good now. So yeah, I don't want to give up on this. I'm frankly not, you know, I don't love writing about this anymore because I feel like, you know, to some extent, it's the same story again and again. But on the other hand, I do feel like most of the mainstream press doesn't challenge the assertions of, say, campaign for tobacco-free kids or an organization called PAVE, which is Parents Against Vaping E-Cigarettes. And so I just feel like if I'm in the minority, it's useful for me to keep hammering away and try and get the story out there, ideally, hopefully get it read by some mainstream reporters who would pick it up or by some people in the political arena. And in fact, I want to just say one of the better stories I've seen in a long time on vaping came out in the last month in the Boston Globe magazine by a very well-respected science writer, essentially um, making the argument that the attacks against e-cigarettes are uh, overblown. If you could take us step-by-step step through Bloomberg and his impact on the vaping debate in the U.S. first only? Sure. So Bloomberg's commitment to the anti-vaping groups was made in the fall of 2019, just six months before COVID came along. And it amounted to $160 million over three years, most of which I believe it's not entirely clear went to campaign for tobacco-free kids, which then regranted to some other organizations. And so what's happened since then? Um, unfortunately, from my point of view, some not very good things happened. One is there were grassroots campaigns in many states and cities 
that led, I believe, more than 200 local governments and five states to either ban flavored vapes, that was what they did in most cases, or in certain cases, I believe in the city of San Francisco, and I think the state of Massachusetts to ban all e-cigarette products. So why is that a bad thing? Because it means that if I'm a smoker and I want to move to e-cigarettes to reduce my risk of death or disease becomes very hard to do in those 200 cities and five states. And making it even harder to do, again, I credit or blame whatever you choose, the, the activist prohibitionist groups for this. Congress attached to one of the COVID relief bills, a provision prohibiting the post office from mailing vaping products through the mail. So if I live in San Francisco or worse, if I live in a very rural part of anywhere and there's no vape shop near me, it becomes hard for me to obtain vapes. And I believe both UPS and FedEx on their own followed suit and decided not to ship vaping products. So in the so, end, you're saying that the vape mail ban could be traced back to Bloomberg money? I mean, I don't see where else it would come from. Uh, the congressmen and senators who have been pushing this are kind of longtime close allies of the campaign for tobacco-free kids, whose leader, Matt Myers, um, exercises a lot of influence in Washington, D.C. He's been a prominent figure here in the tobacco debate going back 30 years or more. Um, but it gets worse. <laughs> Unfortunately for people who want vaping to remain a choice, a disease called E-Valley, misnamed E-Valley arose, and I may not have the timing right on this. I believe it was late in 2020. It was uh, August, 2019. Okay, sorry about that. No Fall problem. 19. Um, and the name is, you know, <laughs> The name has to do with vaping, but the disease did not. It had to do with not vaping e-cigarettes, but vaping THC-tainted um, products, illegal, basically, marijuana products. There's no evidence that it came from a legally authorized e-cigarette sold you know, at a convenience store or a vape shop. But this became so associated with e-cigarettes, thanks to CDC, thanks to Bloomberg and Truth Initiative, and thanks to a lot of reporters who never really dug into the question of where E-Valley came from, that it turned public opinion very strongly against vaping to the point where most Americans believe now that even now, you know, two full years since the E-Valley uh, disease kind of disappeared. Um, they believe that vaping is more dangerous than smoking. Of course, this is a terrible piece of misinformation because, again, it's going to discourage a teenager or an adult from saying, you know, I want to get my nicotine fix. I'm smoking now. What else can I do? Oops, e-cigarettes are dangerous. I can't go there. And that's misinformation.
So I do think Bloomberg and the folks that he funded have accomplished a lot in terms of try succeeding in helping to destroy the vaping industry. Now it's still out there. Um, people are still buying e-cigarettes in lots of places, but from what I've heard, many vape shops uh, have closed. I don't know that there's a full accounting yet. And um, I do know anecdotally that a lot of people have found it much harder to gain access to vapes. And of course, we'll never know how many smokers would have at least tried to use e-cigarettes to quit and been unable to even try. We don't know how many would have succeeded. But, you know, I think it's not incorrect to say that the misinformation and prohibition of flavored vaping products has probably or will probably cost some people their lives. It seems to me that the strategy that Bloomberg and his allies have have executed, and that is to destroy the virtues of vaping. Where there was virtue in quitting smoking using vape, it's now, I mean, that's just destroyed. For the most part, yes. I mean, I guess I do want to credit the very loosely organized vaping industry here because the vape shops that are out there are still doing their thing. And that seems to be the place where smokers are quitting or switching, I should say. Um, you know, most efforts to quit smoking fail. And most of the techniques that are generally used to quit smoking, the nicotine replacement therapy or cognitive behavioral therapy, only work for a minority of smokers. And it takes a lot of persistence to quit. Um, so what happens, I believe, from what I've told by vape shop owners is people will come in, they'll sit, they'll talk to the vape shop owner, they'll try this flavor, they'll try that flavor, and over time, it's a process, they will be able to leave cigarettes entirely behind. It doesn't happen overnight. There's a lot of what's called dual use, people who continue to smoke while vaping. But over time, they can certainly reduce their consumption of combustibles, increase their consumption of vaping. And then if they like, even try to dial down some of the nicotine content in the vaping. But it's kind of a personalized approach. And, and honestly, I, it should be something that politicians on the both sides of the aisle encourage. This is like small business. We're supposed to love small business in America. This is entrepreneurial. This is helping people out. And yet this industry, to a great degree, has been demonized by particularly, I think, some of the Democratic politicians. But I haven't heard a lot of Republicans stand up to to protest these restrictions, and certainly by Truth Initiative and Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids, who have never said a good word about vaping since, they, since the Bloomberg money came along. I do want to be careful and make clear that I don't believe Truth Initiative is accepting or taking Bloomberg money at the moment. They have a, their own very large endowment that they've had since 2000 that came from a big settlement agreement with the tobacco companies. So they don't need the Bloomberg money, but there's good evidence that they've come under the influence of 
people like Matt Myers and other board members at Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids who now sit on the board of Truth Initiative. Mark, let me ask you, it seems that we've not yet talked about the American Heart Association and the American Cancer Society. Aren't they involved in this whole issue? They are, and that is a real mystery to me. Um, There was a time when those associations, the Heart and Lung Association and the Cancer Society, were very open to this idea of harm reduction, moving smokers to less harmful products. But for the last several years, um, all of them have pretty much moved in lockstep, as far as I can tell, and taken this extremely hard line if not anti-all vapes, anti-flavored vapes kind of position. And I don't have a good explanation for it other than to say um, they're getting money directly or indirectly from Bloomberg. So that perhaps comes into play. Uh, Historically, there have been some efforts by the tobacco industry to promote quote, less harmful cigarettes, low tar, low nicotine cigarettes decades ago. And those turned out to be not beneficial. So there's tremendous suspicion there. And I do think another thing that came into play was when Juul became the most popular uh, manufacturer of e-cigarettes. And then when Juul sold about 35% of the company to Altria, big tobacco company, that raised the hackles, raised the suspicions of all the nonprofit groups. And I think a kind of um, automatic response that everything the tobacco companies do is bad and therefore we need to stand in opposition to it uh, took hold. But despite all that, um, I feel like the, or I believe that the Heart and Lung Association and the Cancer Society as big brand name nonprofits have an obligation to take a closer look at the science, um, take a look at something like the study or the essay that came out uh, last year from the majority of former presidents of the Society for Research into Nicotine and Tobacco. And that was a paper that said, we can keep kids away from vapes, but let's essentially make them available to adults from a completely impeccable group of authors. Um, someone at heart, lung, and cancer, or some people at those institutions really should read that paper closely and think about their position on these issues. Yeah, that paper is pretty much kryptonite, I think, to the Bloomberg position. Um, I agree. Yeah. Dr. Warner's been on our show several times, came. Yeah. And did discuss that, you know, that Dr. Mermelstein too, as well. Uh, Cliff Douglas. I I mean, these are people that, you know, we talk to lots, but you know, when they talk with us, unfortunately, you know, it, it is with inside the fishbowl to the, to an extent. It is, but those are people, again, who have spent 30 years thinking about these issues, or maybe more. I mean, Ken Warner is probably my age, maybe 40 years. And they have tremendous credibility. This has been a lifelong pursuit for them. And I just don't see how their views can or should be brushed aside by the public health establishment. Well, and even more so, why should their views be brushed aside by BuzzFeed? 
Right, right. Or by the New York Times. Is the science on vaping spoiled? I do think the science is at times suspect. Um, and, you know, there are some very prominent examples of that from the anti-vaping side, notably, uh, you know, a longtime tobacco control advocate, activist, and scientist named Stanton Glantz out of the University of California at San Francisco, who has had a paper retracted in which he attempted to show that vaping caused heart attacks. Some very diligent scientist, Brad Rodu, who I think is at Louisville, University of Louisville comes to mind, dug into the data behind the paper and they found something shocking that some of the heart attacks had come before people started vaping and yet Professor Glantz attributed the heart attacks to the vaping. It's extremely unusual for a scientific paper to be withdrawn from a journal after it's published. And yet in that case, the paper was retracted. And there are, I wrote about a 3,000 or 4,000 word story about Professor Glantz for a website called Undark. And that one fortunately did get out into the mainstream. It ran in Salon, it ran in Mother Jones, it even ran in Popular Science. And it essentially said that this, his science, while it may have been okay, I'm skeptical about that when he was studying cigarettes back in the 80s and 90s, once he turned his attention to vaping, um, his science really can't and shouldn't be trusted. I do think there's some bias on the pro-vaping side as well. Um, some people want to pretend that vaping is fine for everybody, or at least that we have no reason to believe it shouldn't be fine for everybody. It's a new technology. We don't know all of the chemicals that are in the, the vape, um, you know, uh, cartridges or in the, uh, you know, what comes out of the, the e-cigarettes at either end, or certainly what goes into people's lungs. We don't know everything about it. But we don't have to know everything about it. We know for sure that it's, I think for sure, that it's safer than smoking a cigarette. And that alone, probably much, much safer. And that alone should be a reason to allow people to switch from one nicotine intake product to another. Yeah, with the technology that we have today and the deeper, way deeper understanding of impacts on DNA and genes and biomarkers and so forth, that if this was 60 years ago with the technology we had right now, we would not have needed 50 years to say that smoking was bad. We would have been able to say it immediately because right. our technology is so much more advanced. Our understanding of, of our systems are much more advanced. So it's a misnomer when um, you know opponents to vaping say, well, we don't have enough data, you know, no long-term studies, and we just don't know yet. Yeah, I mean, there aren't, by definition, there are no long-term studies because vaping hasn't been popular for a long time. So I do think that's at least a question that should be asked. You know, could there be long-term effects we're not finding yet? That's certainly been the case with you know, some other chemicals that were widely used for years until problems came up. 
But again, that's not a, as you say, the biomarker studies, you know, you take someone who is a lifelong smoker, you look at their, you know, the various indicators in their body of how they're doing, you let them switch to vaping and look at it again some period of time later, and everything is pointing in a better direction. That just tells you a lot. It doesn't tell you that vaping is safe, but it does tell you that vaping is much, much safer than smoking. The Brits came up with what I think is a rough estimate. It's thrown around a lot and it's a rough estimate, but they think 95% safer than smoking. What's Bloomberg Philanthropies doing worldwide? Does it, does it have an impact? If you believe in a paternalistic state that should try and stop people from smoking, I think it's done a lot of good. So they have helped countries all around the world for 20 years now um, enact all kinds of anti-smoking regulation. And again, um, there's a good argument that folks you and I respect, like Ken Warner and others, would say applause to that. Uh, but they've also fueled a global movement against vaping where their entire large countries that ban vaping, uh, India, I believe, some South American countries, there's a ban in Mexico, but it doesn't appear to be enforced at all. Um, and they, they are trying essentially to, you know, prevent vaping everywhere they can prevent it, working through organizations like the World Health Organization and uh, some global nonprofits now that have gotten money from Bloomberg and are carrying on the anti-vaping uh, campaign, particularly in low and middle income countries around the world. Yeah. Now, um, when I first came across your work, it was actually right around the time that Michelle Minton was putting out her work uh, around philanthrocolonialism. Is that, uh, explain that concept to me and, and does it jive with some of your writing? I mean, it does in the sense she's done a lot of good work on that, particularly in places like the Philippines, where, as I recall, some of the government officials actually were on Bloomberg's payroll. Um, you know, just quick aside, uh, Bloomberg also pays for lawyers in state attorney general's offices across the country. They aren't, to my knowledge involved in vape, vaping, but they're involved in the climate lawsuits that some of the attorneys general have filed. So, you know, he's an influential guy. His foundation is influential. And the idea of philanthrocolonialism is that, you know, you know, white American philanthropists are trying to meddle in the businesses of poor and middle-income countries around the world just in the way colonial powers a century or more ago tried to manage the affairs of people in Africa, South America, Asia, etc. If there were no double standards, there wouldn't be standards at all. <laughs> it's true. All right, so last question then for you. Sure. Mark, back to the United States. Is there any hope uh, that there could be a robust uh, vaping industry or is it much more dire? No, I think there's definitely hope. I mean, I wouldn't be a reporter if I didn't think that over time, 
good reporting can help influence public opinion and political opinion and political action. So I think if the reporting improves, if the vaping industry can get its act together a little better than it has in the past, and I actually think that is going on and they will have the opportunity to get to people in Congress and state legislatures and both prevent further bans and perhaps roll back some of the laws and bans that we have now, I think that's likely to happen. I also think that the tobacco industry is gonna play a role in um, enabling a transit transition to less harmful products because they're investing in those less ha harmful products. I think they recognize, or you can't not recognize that smoking is actually declining in the US dramatically. Far fewer people are smoking today than did 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. They need to maintain their business and they see other nicotine products as potentially a growth area for them. So for example, Philip Morris International, big company uh, created when Altria, when Philip Morris split into two companies, Altria and Philip Morris International, they've said that they would like 50% of their revenues to come from non-combustible products. Uh, I don't know that they've set a date, but in the near future. So I think there's going to be market forces as well as political forces that turn the tide on this.